you know, this is a different series, and really today is kind of intro part B. Uh, if you didn't hear Ryan's message last week, please, please, please go listen to that. Um, I know I feel like I said it all the time, but I just feel like Ryan and Jeff and Dave and the people that we have uh, really always bring something valuable. But, but I mean it, especially this time. Ryan's message last week was really important for the Credo series. It offered a lot of context, a lot of the things that we're talking about, a lot of why we're talking about what we're talking about. Uh, you know, last week he talked, uh, among other things, about the fact that we're hoping uh, to bring clarity in really kind of these muddy, complicated, tricky, confusing times. And, and clarity, as he keeps saying, clarity is kindness. Um, it's, it's not kind to keep things kind of obfuscated and, and cloudy and, and all that kind of stuff. So we are really in this series trying to bring some clarity in who we are, what we believe, what this family is, and, and what we really do believe is true and what we believe is healthy. Um, and so we're going to be digging into that a, a bit more. Uh, today is, is a bit different of a sermon. Usually, you know, you know me, I like to tell stories and all that kind of stuff, and, and we like to kind of try to weave in kind of one point that we feel like we're really pointing towards. Uh, today, I got a little bit of birdshot for you. Um, and, and, and one big point as well, uh, and, and a little bit less stories and a little bit more of, of a fire hose. So for the firemen and women in the room, you guys are probably most prepared. Uh, if you're the kind of person who likes taking notes, which is not me, I don't like taking notes, but if you are a note-taking kind of person, this is that kind of message. Um, but so as, as we start diving into uh, the question of the authority of Scripture, um, maybe you're really familiar with uh, questions like this. You know, why... Why should I submit my life to the Bible? Isn't the Bible just a book? Uh, or, or isn't the Bible really a book that's been corrupted so much by people like medieval scholars and medieval scribes that we don't even really know what it originally said to begin with? Or, or wasn't the Bible a bunch of lies in the first place, right? Just like those medieval scribes might have changed things to keep people under their thumb, didn't the authors of the Bible, weren't they just writing down the things that they wrote down because organized religion is a tool to control people and they wanted to control people? Why should I live my life under the Bible? Uh, that is a really good question. That's a really important question. If you've asked that question or if you are asking that question, um, I guess it's because you intu intuitively know that the authorities that we subject ourselves to have a profound impact on our lives, on our communities, and on the world around us. A few years back, my wife and I, uh, we were in Singapore for a weekend for a, a little uh, a visa run. We just needed to get our visa changed out when we were living in Southeast Asia, and uh, Singapore was the place to do it. And as we're walking around Singapore, we're seeing what's literally the cleanest city in the world. It's, I don't know how they figure this out. They go measure trash, but someone determined that Singapore is the cleanest city in the world. Uh, it's, it's called the Garden City because it's literally like a giant garden. Uh, the, have you ever seen the movie Crazy Rich Asians? It's one of my wife's favorite movies. Uh, that whole movie is set in Singapore, and it is as beautiful as it looks in that movie. Uh, it's one of the cleanest places. It's, it's one of the most economically stable places in the world. Singapore really is something. Um, also, best food I've ever had in my life was in Singapore. They have little hawker stations that are Michelin star rated, which is absolutely nuts. You get like a $10 Michelin star meal. Um, it's, it's really something. Uh, and I remember we were uh, in an Uber or a taxi or something like that, or, or I don't remember exactly, but we were speaking with someone, and they said, you know, if you talk to the grandmas and the grandpas who've lived in Singapore their whole lives, they'll point you uh, to, to those world-class uh, towers, to, the, to the, the Marina Bay Sands, which maybe you've recognized that. It's this, this giant hotel. It's, it's world famous. It's three towers with kind of like a boat-shaped bridge on top and an infinity pool that overlooks the city. They'll point you to those or, or to the, the airport that has a man-made water waterfall in it or these massive gardens or they'll point to the fact that uh, Singapore, you know, actually is 
uh, one of the wealthiest nations in the world. It's, it's got the highest uh, GDP per capita in all of Asia. It comes in at number six on the global, uh, on the global race for GDP uh, per capita, actually ahead of the states, which is number seven. So they'll point to these things like the Marina Bay Sands, and they'll say, I remember when that was a swamp. I remember when that was a fisherman's wharf. I remember when that was nothing. And they'll tell you about how the Singaporean government for better or for worse, and economically speaking, absolutely for better, turned it around in a matter of decades, turned it from being a bunch of swamps and nothing into one of the wealthiest, most economically stable places in the world. Contrast that to the former Soviet Union. If you've ever traveled in Eastern Europe or anywhere that used to be part of the Soviet Union, and you will find a place uh, that has spent the last 30 years recovering from the bad authority of the Communist Party in the Soviet Union, where in the course of a few decades, it imploded one of the largest empires the world has ever known. The authorities that we submit our lives to have a profound impact on ourselves, our communities, and the world around us. And so it's a good question, why should I submit my life to the Bible? Because if the Bible is a good authority, it'll have a profound impact for life and abundance and fruitfulness. If it's a bad authority, it might just cause our lives and the world around us to implode. So I want to talk today about the authority of Scripture, but before we do that, I have some more kind of uh, little, little random details that I, that I think are important for this Credo series. Like Ryan said, Credo is, is the series we're jumping into. It's the Latin word for I believe. And really, for the bulk of what we're going to be doing is talking about the Apostles' Creed. Uh, creeds are these interesting things that the church kind of wraps around in times of conf- confusion. Um, one of the things that, that we want to talk about in this Credo series, one of the reasons we're doing this, uh, is because we want to talk about something that in sociology and in anthropology is called boundary markers. Uh, boundary markers in sociology and anthropology, that, that's a term that's used to, to talk about things that, that groups, uh, that communities, that cultures and subcultures use to kind of define themselves, uh, to communicate to themselves internally and to everybody externally, this is who we are. So this can be things you wear, things that you, way you walk, way that you act. This can be uh, things that you believe. This can be, uh, you know, words that you use or don't use. So you could think of Bloods and Crips in L.A., right, and how they uh, wear red or how they wear blue, and that lets you know what gang they're a part of. Uh, you can think of the 1990s and wearing airwalks or vans. Uh, if you remember the 90s, I was a kid in the 90s, but old enough to remember. Um, you remember that if you're wearing airwalks or vans, you are making a statement. This is the boundary marker. You're telling everybody, I am a skater. This is my identity, this is my community, this is my culture, this is my subculture. You know, and if you uh, wore airwalks or vans in the 90s and you didn't own a skateboard or you owned one and never rode it, you would be labeled with the most shameful label that the 1990s had to offer. You would be labeled a poser. Which even now, there's a part of me that like remembers nine-year-old me and is like, no, don't call me a poser. Ah, it's the worst The worst thing you could be. Why? Because you're taking a hold of a boundary marker that actually is not an appropriate boundary marker for you because you don't belong in those airwalks. You should not wear those. Or we could talk about Floridians, right, and how they use the word Coke for every soda, even if it's Pepsi, which is so confusing. But it lets you know, hey, that guy's from Florida, or at least the South, right? Uh, The Apostles' Creed is for us, is for the church, a boundary marker. It's something that we wrap ourselves around to say this is a a good summary, a a succinct definition of some of the most important bits of theology that we find in the Scripture. And we want to bring clarity to say this is what we believe, this is who we are, uh, both for ourselves internally and also for everybody else. We want them to see, hey, this is who we are. Now, one of the other boundary markers that's really important to us at Living Streams is the authority of Scripture. 
Um, and so as we go through the Apostles' Creed, we won't be exegeting the Apostles' Creed because although that's important and we hold it in a special place, we hold it beneath the scriptures. Uh, the word exegete is a big fancy Bible nerd word that basically means to figure out what the original text said and then to teach on that, to unpack that. Rather, what we're gonna be doing is we're gonna be reading the Apostles' Creed and letting that point us over to the scriptures and we'll be exegeting the scriptures to see what the Bible says about the topics that the Apostles' Creed is bringing up. Um, that might feel like splitting hairs to you, but we think it's actually really important. And one of the reasons we're talking about the authority of Scripture today is because it is something that's, that's being challenged by a lot of people. If it wasn't, we wouldn't, we wouldn't bother to talk about it. I'd just be home taking a nap right now. Um, but because we, we see that there's actually a lot of people, a lot of believers, a lot of followers of Jesus, people who are or are not, I'm not sure, uh, following Jesus, there are even churches and entire denominations who cannot say without crossing their fingers that we believe that the Bible is true, authoritative, and inspired by God. Because of that, we feel it's important to say we actually really do believe this. We think it's really important to understand that the authority of Scripture is, is, is significant, is important. You've probably heard of people, you know, the word uh, deconstruction is a term you hear. I think when I started, first started hearing that word, I thought, oh, this is people just trying to make sure that everything that they believe uh, as far as they're following Jesus is true. But it's turned into, unfortunately, something that really means um, it's, it's kind of code for uh, I'm looking for a pathway to stop really following Jesus. I'm looking for a way to no longer have to submit myself to the authority of the Bible. And we want to talk about some of the things that you might hear maybe on like a deconstructionist podcast or something. Because I think if you hear it from someone who's disenchanted, who's walked away from the Lord, it can sound like kind of a gotcha moment. You're like, oh my gosh, nobody ever talked about it in church. But we're not afraid of talking about the hard things because we think the hard things have really satisfying answers. Truth is, sometimes it's just hard to work those things into a sermon on Sunday as evidenced by the fact that I promise you I'm going over time today. Sorry. Um, uh, I already apologized to the other two services for that. I mean, it's hard to squeeze this stuff in, but we think it's really important. We think it's really important that you hear from the church uh, some of the things that other people would say, see, that's why you know the Bible isn't true. And we think it's important that we submit ourselves to the authority of Scripture. Imagine if you were a kid and you had figured out as a child how to manipulate your way around doing anything that your parents wanted you to do that you didn't like. You would have grown into a sociopath if you had figured out how to manipulate your way out of the authority of your parents. And if we uh, take the approach that a lot of people who I think may still have a, a genuine relationship with the Lord, like it's not our job to judge who is gonna have relationship with Jesus in eternity or not. The Bible, that, well, the Bible says this, the Apostles' Creed summarizes it and said Jesus is the one who will judge the quick and the dead. It may not be our judge to con job to condemn, but it is our job to have discernment and to know what's healthy and what's fruitful and what's not. And if we manipulate our way around the authority of Scripture so that the Scripture, whenever we're uncomfortable with it, we can just kind of conform it to what's happening in society, we can kind of conform it to our own ideas and what we like, then we're not really giving it authority, and we might as well abandon it altogether and just say, hey, I live life by what I want. And there are a lot of people who say they're following Jesus and maybe really do know Jesus, but they're on a path that is saying, I'm just gonna manipulate the scripture into saying what I want it to. There are, again, entire churches and denominations that are doing that. And we're not trying to say, hey, they're going to hell and we know it. We're just trying to say, this is not healthy. This is not good. And this is putting them in a really bad direction. I, I, I say this oftentimes. I, I think sometimes uh, the danger of bad theology is less that God will reject you. That might be a possibility. But it's more so that you will ultimately end up rejecting God. Bad theology has a tendency to nudge us to the shoulders of the way of Jesus and at times to shove us off it altogether. So we really do believe in the authority of Scripture. We think this is important. 
Um, so much so that, uh, that it's one of the boundary markers that we really look at. Our elders a few years ago, they got together, they sat down, and they discussed a number of kind of boundary markers, some clarifying statements, statements that we don't hold as valuable as the Apostles' Creed, and we certainly don't hold as valuable as the Scriptures, but just a summary of like, this is the stuff that we believe. You can find that stuff on our website uh, under the We Believe page. Um, and I want to read you what they wrote about the Scriptures, because they actually spent time discussing every single word here. Um, It says this, it says, we believe the scriptures are true, authoritative, and inspired by God, and we seek to apply them to life with the help of the Holy Spirit, historical church teachings, and reason. And then it references a number of of passages. I'm just going to read one of those passages for you. But essentially what we're saying is we believe the Bible is true, it's authoritative, and it's inspired by God, and we're not joking. Nobody's crossing their fingers when we say that. We're not like thinking, ha, that's not exactly what, we're not gonna obfuscate that. We really, when we say that, that's what we mean. There are a lot of hairs that we can split, and we will split some of them on Wednesday. Uh, please show up to talk about that a little bit. Um, but let me read one of those passages that are referenced there, and you can read all three of them if you'd like. But 2 Timothy three sixteen through 17, it says this, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so essentially what we're saying is we believe that the Bible is authoritative because the Bible says that it's authoritative. Now, for a lot of you in the room, you're shaking your head and you're like, yeah, that's it, like that's all, like that's what I need, that's all I need is that the Bible says it's authoritative and that is enough for me. And I think out of those of you who are shaking your head who are like, yes, that sounds great, there's probably two camps. I think there's a, a small minority of you who are shaking your head uh, saying, yeah, the Bible says it's authoritative because it says so and that's good enough for me. I think there's a small number of people who are saying, nodding their head to that because you're maybe new in your faith and you feel like that's what you should do. I think the majority of people nodding your head to that, though, it's because you've been walking under the authority of the Bible for years and even decades, and you have seen that it's true. You have seen that it is a good authority. And so when the Bible says something, that really is good enough for you. You just want to make sure that you understand what the Bible's actually saying, and then you know that that's true and authoritative, and that's good enough. But my guess is there are probably more people in this room than I even realize who hear me say that the Bible says it's authoritative because it says so, and you're like, ah. I don't know about that. I don't usually like when people say, because I said so, kind of arguments. And maybe there's even a logic and a reason nerd in the room who you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. I see two logical fallacies in that argument. I see both the logical fallacy of argument from authority and I see that you established that, org- uh, that authority uh, with a circular reasoning logical fallacy. And, and I really, I, I, today I think for those of us who are nodding our head and saying, yes, the Bible's authoritative because it says so, this message is really, I think, hopefully to build and to buttress your, your confidence in the fact that you're right. Uh, for those of us in the room who are uncomfortable with that statement, um, I really want to have a dialogue with you today. Uh, I want to have a conversation with you today. Because I, I think that's, you're, you're right to see some issue with that. But I want to talk about whether or not the Bible is authoritative. The first thing I would say to you is this. Just because you see a couple logical fallacies in that argument, if you're a logic and reason nerd, you know that that doesn't necessarily mean that that argument is wrong. Or at least that the conclusion of that argument is wrong. And I think that there are very satisfying, logical, reasonable arguments that point us in a solid direction with pretty much beyond reasonable doubt that the Bible is authoritative, true, and inspired by God. And we're going to talk about two of those just a little bit today and a lot more of them on Wednesday. Um, if you want to show up for that, if that, you're that kind of person. 
The second thing I would say to you is really a question, and I, I would ask you to ask yourself this question. What would it take to convince me that the Bible is authoritative, that the Bible is true, that the Bible is inspired by God? Ask yourself, what would it take me to convince that? What would it take to convince me that? And I think that's a really important thing to actually ask yourself and to figure out what that is. Because again, if the Bible is authoritative and true, then it'll have, if it's a good authority, then it'll, it'll, it'll lead to abundance in our life and the world around us. And if it's a bad authority, it'll lead to destruction. So you probably ought to figure out, how do I answer this question? How do I figure out whether it's a good or a bad authority? One way or the other, that's a very important question. Um, I'm going to give you some answers to two of those questions that I raised earlier in the message. You know, isn't the Bible just corrupted testimony and isn't the Bible false testimony? I'm going to give two of the many, many, many cases that we could build uh, to respond to those. But I, I want to tell you ahead of time, the answers to those, the logical, reasonable cases against those, those have very little to do with why I believe that the Bible is authoritative. I'll tell you that kind of at the end here. But uh, let's answer those questions in their turn. I don't want to... Uh, spend any time today talking about the Old Testament, um, we're going to focus in on the New Testament. Why? Because I only have a certain amount of time today. Uh, I Suffice it to say, although we're not going to touch the Old Testament today, I hope we will uh, get in depth about the Old Testament on Wednesday. But suffice it to say, I also believe, and we also believe that the Old Testament is true, authoritative, and inspired by God. It is beautiful, and it just is a simply, it's a different situation. It's a different conversation when we talk about the New Testament. So today we're going to focus in on the New Testament, uh, because that really is what everything hinges on, although the, the Old Testament is beautiful and powerful and good and authoritative still. Um, so let's talk about, about the question, well, isn't the New Testament, isn't the Bible a bunch of corrupted evidence? Didn't medieval scribes get in there and change what the Bible says so that they could control the people around them? Well, fortunately, when we're talking about the verifiability, like the truth, the like original, uh, the ability to tell whether or not this is the original text, when we're talking about ancient manuscripts, there is a field of study called textual criticism. That is, that is devoted to figuring out, hey, is this document that we have, is it corrupted or not? And when we talk about uh, uh, textual criticism, it really one of the main pillars of textual criticism is, is a discussion around manuscript evidence. And manuscript evidence is really just trying to take a look at the, the manuscripts, the documents, the copies that we have. And when we talk about manuscript evidence, there are three pillars that we build that, that, that around and try to figure out how verifiable, how true, how, how close to the original can we reconstruct. And so the three things that they talk about in manuscript evidence are, one, the time gap. What is the time gap between when the original document was written, when pen hit paper for the first time, uh, and, and the oldest copy or fragment of a copy that we have currently. If you have a large time gap, you're less confident uh, that what you have looks like the original. If you have a small time gap, obviously you're more confident that what you have looks like the original or is exactly an exact copy of it. The next thing they talk about is, is the abundance, is the number of manuscripts, complete or incomplete, that you have. And you, if, if you have a ton of manuscripts, then you feel pretty confident that we have the original, we, have, we can at the very least reconstruct the original. If you only have a couple, your confidence goes down significantly. The third thing that they talk about in manuscript evidence uh, is the agreement between those copies, right? So if all the copies are like completely the same, we feel pretty dang confident that they're actually what it was, what it was originally written to be. If all the copies are significantly different, well, our confidence goes down a little bit. Maybe we, do, we need to do some reconstruction. So I want to talk about a few ancient documents that you're probably familiar with. The first would be Plato. Um, not the kind that you eat when you're not supposed to when you're five years old. Uh, that is for some reason salty. Um, but Plato, as, as in the, uh, you know, the, the ancient Greek philosopher. Uh, for Plato's works, uh, we actually, Plato is pretty par for the course. We have a 1,300-year gap between the oldest copy of Plato's work that we have and when he would have written. 
And that's actually pretty normal. That is shocking to you. You're like, what, the 1600? That'd be like from, from today all the way back to the 700s. That's, that's insane. Uh, but it's pretty normal. Uh, currently, we have about 210 uh, manuscripts or fragments of manuscripts of Plato's work that are ancient. Uh, and, and actually, only a few years ago, like 10, 15, 20 years ago, we only had seven copies of his manuscripts, uh, which is to say basically that the textbooks that you read in high school and college were probably based off of only seven. And that's pretty normal. And you don't see anybody asking whether or not Plato is reliable and if we have actual, you know, if we actually know what Plato said. Uh, Herodotus, uh, pretty similar. We have a 1,350-year gap. Uh, we have 109 copies uh, or, or complete or incomplete copies of, of his manuscripts. And we have uh, eight, uh, about 10, 15, 20 years ago, we only had eight uh, manuscripts of Herodotus. Homer's The Iliad is uh, the number two uh, ancient document. It blows number three out of the water by far. Um, it's pretty unheard of uh, as far as uh, manuscript evidence goes. Uh, for Homer's The Iliad, we only have a 400-year gap, which you're thinking only, that's a long time. That's like the 1600s from, from today. That's huge. But that's actually pretty phenomenal when we're talking about uh, uh, manuscript evidence for ancient manuscripts. Uh, of Homer's The Iliad, we have 1,757 ancient documents, ancient manuscripts. And not so long ago, it was, it was still 643. So pretty dang shocking. Like Homer's the Iliad, it's like, wow, that, we, we know what's going on with Homer's the Iliad. The New Testament, however, is a complete different level altogether. Nothing comes anywhere near it. For the New Testament, we have actually the smallest gap that we have for the New Testament is only 40 years. Now that's from a scrap of the Gospel of John. Uh, but it was 40 years from when John would have actually originally written the Gospel of John. That is absolutely unprecedented in ancient manuscript evidence and in textual criticism. It's mind-blowing. That is 10 times better than the oldest copy, the only, oldest partial copy of Homer's Iliad that we have. Um, we have uh, 5,800 and counting manuscripts of the New Testament. Uh, and whereas Homer's the Iliad, those documents, they agree about 95%. For the New Testament, we have a 99.5% accuracy and agreement between, uh, between all those copies. Um, so what about, well, how old are those? Like are all 5,800 of them, are, them, are most of them other than that little scrap just from a couple hundred years ago? No. Uh, we actually have 12 second century manuscripts, 64 third century, 84 fourth century. That's 124 manuscripts, partial or complete, um, within 300 years of when the Bible was written. That's 124 manuscripts that are 100 years better than the next best document uh, for, uh, for the Iliad. Absolutely shocking. Nothing else touches this at all. Now, you may have heard, okay, well, you see there's a, there's a 0.5% in that accuracy. You may have heard that there are thousands of errors in the New Testament. That is one of those wildly untrue, true statistics um, that is manipulated to mean something very different from what it says. People have probably told you there are thousands of errors in the Bible. What they should be saying is, well, there are thousands of variations. Something like 99.9% of those variations are simple spelling or grammar issues. So the majority of them would be things like, you know how we spell color without the letter U, but the British spell it with the letter U? Um, so you have scribes who are updating the spelling and the grammar, things like that. Change is really insignificant, doesn't do anything at all. Uh, then we have a number of, uh, a, another large significant portion that are actually just spelling mistakes, particularly from the earlier times when the church was persecuted because it's really hard to get your spelling correct when people are trying to stab you. 
Um, and so you have a bit more of those in the first few centuries when the church is being persecuted. And again, they're just spelling mistakes uh, because the scribes back then were human beings as well. Um, the overwhelming majority are just like that. They mean nothing. They're just tiny little, oh, forgot to put a comma there, except commas didn't exist back then. Um, but I spelled that wrong, spelled that word wrong. There is a small fraction that remains of, of exactly what you might think it is, that they were scribes making alterations and changes to the text. But because of the massive number of documents that we have, we can sniff out every single one of those with absolute certainty and see when someone basically wrote something in the Bible that didn't belong there. All of your modern translations are either going to omit those, those changes or they're going to note them. I want to go over just a couple of them, and we'll go over maybe a few more on Wednesday if we have time for it, um, because it really is a small bucket of them, and every single one of them, spoiler alert here, Every single one of them makes zero difference on who we know Jesus to be or any of our theology in any way, shape, or form. One of the most significant, arguably the most significant difference, uh, variation between manuscripts would actually be uh, the woman caught in adultery uh, that, we found, that we find in the Gospel of John. That story didn't show up until AD 300. Um, most biblical scholars say that that was probably someone that, a story that was passed down orally. Maybe even John was the one who told it. Maybe they found some scraps of John. And they said, hey, we're starting to forget uh, this story. Let's paste it in the Bible so we don't lose it. But what if it's like worst case scenario? What if it was a lie? What if someone made it up? What if some, uh, somebody in AD 300 said, I'm just going to put this in because it sounds like a fun story to make up about Jesus. Does the story of the woman caught in adultery, you can read it for yourself, does that change anything does it add or subtract anything about what we know, who we know Jesus to be or any of our theology? Spend some time thinking about that, and my guess is if you've read the rest of the Bible, you will realize, no, not one shred of difference. As much as we love that story and it's beautiful, and it may actually be from the apostles, but even if it's not, it doesn't change anything. Uh, you know, the detail about Jesus sweating blood in Gethsemane, that was added in at some point in time. Might have been oral tradition. It might have been a fabrication. Even if it was a fabrication, does that change anything? I, 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 don't, I don't think it does. Here's a couple more. Uh, John 5, 4. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and troubled the waters. Whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole of whatever disease he had. So this little detail uh, may have been added in. It may have been oral tradition. It may have been there originally and it got missed for a little bit and, and, and corrected. Or it was a total fabrication. It's a tiny bit of context that's very insignificant. Does that change anything about Jesus or theology? Again, I think my answer would be no. Uh, Acts chapter 15, verse 34, uh, notwithstanding it, please Silas to abide there still. Uh, Silas hung out in Antioch a little bit longer. Does that make any difference? All of these variations are just like this. They do not amount to a single difference in the character of Jesus, in the character of God, in any of our, of our theology. They are utterly insignificant, and we can look at every single one of them and say, oh, that wasn't supposed to be there. What we have is a beautifully and flawlessly preserved New Testament. And that's absolutely unheard of. There are still giant gaps in Plato's work that we don't even know what Plato wrote there. The truth is, is the Bible has not been corrupted. Um, but what about the question, was it false testimony? Were the apostles lying to begin with? Were they making that stuff up? Well, I want to talk about three things in addressing that question, whether or not they were lying just to control people in the first place. The first thing I want to talk about is the ring of truth, and then I want to talk um, about whatever is in my notes after that. <laughs> I want to talk about the ring of truth, then I want to talk about motives, and then I want to talk about hostile corroborating accounts. Uh, so when you talk about the ring of truth, there are people uh, like detectives who have made an art and a science and mastered it of figuring out when people are lying or telling the truth. Actually, this book, Cold Case Christianity, I've based a lot of this out of, and really goes a lot more in-depth about all this stuff. Uh, the author of this book was a cold case detective, 
And he became interested at one point in time to figure out, well, was the, is the Bible true? And he thought, actually, I know exactly what to do. Like, I'm a, I'm, I'm a cold case detective. I can apply my professional skills to figuring out whether or not uh, the New Testament is true beyond a reason, reasonable doubt or whether it's busted. Um, and this is a lot of very compelling, pretty dang airtight arguments that lead us to the conclusion, I would say, that, yeah, it, it is. And uh, we were supposed to have them today, but Amazon didn't ship them in time. So uh, you can go in the bookstore if you want and tell Shai, and she can uh, pre-order a copy for you. We'll actually have them probably tomorrow. Um, but so when we talk about the ring of truth, we're basically saying those little things that people say that let you, that tip you off to whether they're telling the truth or lying. Uh, we could list dozens and dozens and dozens of these. I just want to talk about a couple, uh, really in the, in the context of the Gospel of John, but we could talk about every Gospel and the rest of the New Testament as well. So one of the little tiny tidbits of the ring of truth that I think is so interesting is this. Uh, in the Gospel of John, Gospel of John is the only Gospel that only refers to Mary as the mother of Jesus as opposed to Mary the mother of Jesus. All the other three refer to her as that. And that sounds like small and insignificant and who cares and Alec, why are you telling me this? It sounds insignificant until you remember that by the time John is writing down his gospel, he's been Mary's adopted son for decades. And it's weird to call your mom by her first name. I mean, try it. Say your mom's first name right now. Sally. That's my mom's first name. And I feel uncomfortable saying it because you don't do that. It's, it's not normal. And so, God, so John, as he's writing his gospel, can't bring himself to say Mary. So he just writes the mother of Jesus. Why? Because it's, because it's actually John writing his actual account, and he actually adopted this woman as his mother. Another really cool thing from the Gospel of John is, you know, towards the end in, in John chapter, I think it's 18, right, that, you know, the story of, like, Peter chops the guy's ear off and Jesus puts it back on. Well, John, uh, like many of the, uh, like all of the other Gospel writers, is trying to say, this is my witness, this is my testimony, this is my eyewitness account of what I saw. So he says, hey, the guy who's, who got his, chop, his ear chopped off, his name was Malchus, the, the servant of the high priest. Why would he add that detail? What does that matter to you and to me? Well, it would matter if you were reading it in the first century. John is basically saying, hey, you don't believe me? Go talk to Malchus. I'm pretty sure he remembers when his ear got chopped off and Jesus put it back on. He'll tell you, this happened. I'm not kidding. The gospels are dripping in details like that. I would love to give you more, but I'm already running out of time. So let's talk about motive, right? So maybe, okay, well, if it's got the ring of truth, well, what were their motives? Maybe they were really motivated to lie. Well, when we talk about motives, we all know because we've watched TV and movies and these hold up true in, in, as far as detectives go as well, that we're talking about uh, money, sex, and, and power. Well, these are really easy to check off the list. Did, did, the, did the apostles gain any money from lying about their account in the New Testament? Well, both the New Testament as well as external sources attest to us that the, the, the apostles, they were broke. They were poor. They actually sold all their stuff and kind of held it in common. They, they, if you read the book of James, you'll realize that as well as the other, James as well as the other apostles, they felt a little uncomfortable around money. So, so they weren't getting any money from this. Well, what about sex? Well, if they were trying to get sex out of writing the New Testament, they did a really bad job. Because <laughs> it would have been very easy for them to have said, oh, okay, yeah, I remember, I remember what Jesus said that one time on that mount. Uh, J- Jesus said, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, go for it. Um, I don't know what Bible you're reading, but that's not how it reads in my Bible. And as far as we know, uh, most of them were married. One or two of them weren't. And as far as we know, both internal and external sources, the apostles lived by the sexual ethic that Jesus taught. So they're doing a very bad job if they were trying to get sex out of this. Um, and, And furthermore, that was like a way further back line than what the world around them was drawing. 
So what about power? Clearly power, we know that religion is just meant to control people, right? That's all that's going on, organized religion in their texts. Well, the truth is the apostles got no power from this, except for the power of the Holy Spirit, which is pretty significant. But there was no political power whatsoever to be found in the church until around 8300 under Emperor Constantine. The, the apostles were all long dead and cold by then. And actually what little political stability that they had as Jews, they, they flushed down the toilet, we talked about this in, in, in Galatians, uh, just to follow Jesus. So much so that the church was smashed and shattered into what was called the diaspora as they spread out throughout the world. And every single one of the apostles, tradition tells us, were martyred for their faith, except for John, who died an old man in exile on the Isle of Patmos. And like Ryan mentioned on Easter, why would you die for something you knew to be a lie? Someone might die for something that somebody else convinced them was a lie. But all these men said that they saw it. And when you torture witnesses, they'll tell you whatever they want, unless what they believe is true and really important. So it's pretty easy to say, I'd say beyond a reasonable doubt, that what we have in the New Testament are the actual words of the authors of the New Testament And that these authors were not lying. It's not reasonable to assume that they were lying. But all of this means uh, very little for me. Oh, sorry. Um, I I told you I had had one other point on there. I'll just skip over it because I'm running out of time here. But suffice it to say, Ryan referenced this a bit on Easter, uh, that there are quite a few handfuls, uh, or, or there is a handful or so, of independent hostile sources that are not Christians, that are not from the New Testament, that are corroborating the things that the Bible is telling us, that the New Testament is telling, telling us. Among those details that you can find from things like the Talmud, right, the Jewish Talmud that has no interest in saying Jesus is Messiah, uh, like, like different Roman historians and Josephus, uh, we, can hear that, uh, that, that we can hear it uh, corroborated that Jesus uh, was a teacher, uh, he was a Jew, We can hear that he was called the wise king of the Jews. And we can even hear, again, not the New Testament, uh, that there was an earthquake in the area when he was crucified and that there was darkness that fell over the land. Oh, and also that uh, that he he, um, produced quite a few miracles. Not Christians saying this. People who don't like Jesus corroborating this. Pretty confident to say that it wasn't a lie. Um, But for me, like I said, none of these arguments really... Like, they're not the reason that I believe that the Bible is true, authoritative, inspired by God. When I was about 13 years old, um, I was reading Proverbs one day. And for me, uh, I was in seventh grade. And and middle school for me was a really unpleasant time full of enemies. I don't know what your junior high experience was like, but I had enemy after enemy after enemy in junior high. I had a kid who stabbed me with a pencil in the arm one day, and I told the teacher, and and she was like, ah, it's just a pencil. And I was like, yeah, but he stabbed me. Like, that's not okay. I had a kid at my bus stop that that I shoved into a bush, and he shoved me into a bush. I had these two guys in my PE class I was constantly on the verge of fighting with. I had these two friends, two out of my my four best friends, and they kind of turned their back on me and and our other friend and started saying these nasty things about us to everybody else, constant insults, constantly bumping into people in the hallway, and they're like, what, what? And I'm like, yeah, you know, um, that, that was junior high for me. Um, and I'm reading the book of Proverbs in my seventh grade year at one point in time, and I come across this verse that says, when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he is at peace with even his enemies. And I immediately thought, bull crap. I thought, whoever wrote that didn't go to Shea Middle School. They do not know what was going on. They don't know what an enemy is. They don't know what they're talking about. I thought, isn't the very definition of an enemy someone with whom you're not at peace? So how could I be at peace with my enemies? But David Stockton was my youth pastor in seventh grade. 
And just recently, just a little bit before that, he had preached a message where he basically said, hey, if you see something in the Bible that doesn't make sense to you, that you don't believe, that sounds like shenanigans, why don't you test it? Why don't you try it and see what happens? Just do what the Bible says and see what the results are. He said, I dare you. I was a seventh grader, so I was like, oh, he dared me. I gotta do it if he dared me, you know? So I come across this and I thought, I just found the first hole in the Bible. The Bible doesn't know what it's talking about. I'm gonna test this and, and, and see what happens. So I thought about, well, what does Jesus say? What would be pleasing to the Lord in my ways concerning my enemies? And I thought, well, Jesus talked about praying for those who persecute you. And I thought, well, I could pray for, I could pray for my enemies. That doesn't sound easy, but it sounds like something I can do. So I started doing that. And then I came across another proverb that says, harsh words stir up anger, but a gentle response turns away wrath. And I thought, that sounds really hard, but I can do that too. So I'd be in the hallway at school and I'd bump into someone and they'd turn around and they'd go, what? Uh, you, man. And instead of, you know, showing them, you know, one of my digits like I normally would, I would respond and I would just say, hey, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to bump into you. Would you forgive me? And they'd go, watch yourself. Okay. Or when someone would insult me and call me a name, instead of trying to come up with a string of like nonsensical insults and curse words that I would normally do, uh, when they would insult me, I would just respond and say, hey, I'm so sorry you feel that way. I I actually think you're kind of cool. And when I was feeling really brave, I would, I would add in, and I think Jesus loves you. And I am so lucky that none of those turned into wedgies. Um, I, I really thought they were, and they didn't always go over well. But I kid you not, at the end of that semester, I was at peace with every single one of my junior high enemies, and a couple of them had become my friends. And I realized this book is true. And it knows things that I don't know. And it's worth listening to its authority. I was about 13 years old then. I'm about 33 years old now. And the 20 years in between, over and over and over again, I have tested the word of God. At times it's been easy. Many times it has been incredibly costly. It has cost me money. It's cost me opportunities. Submitting to the word of God has brought me into heartbreak. I've even had my own brother and sister and people in my family reject me because of it. And every single time that I have submitted to the authority of the scripture, regardless of the cost and the sacrifice, it has produced fruit and abundance and goodness in my life. And so I trust this word. I trust that it's true. I trust that it's authoritative. And I trust that it is inspired by God. And if you're one of the people who's saying, I don't know. I don't know about that. If you're one of the people, maybe there's a lot of people in our society that have a problem with the sexual ethic that the Bible preaches. I, I I would say this to you. If you're uncomfortable with what the Bible says about sex or sexuality or anything else, I would just say what David said. I would say, I dare you to test it. Do an experiment. Do your best to wrap your mind around what the Bible actually says and then adhere to that for a period of time. I would say minimum a month, but really like give it a a year if you could. Six months, that feels like a compromise. But give it a good stretch of time. Do what the Bible says and see if it produces life or death in your life. If it produces destruction and death and nothing good, then you'll realize, okay, this book is full of crap. But if it produces life, 
You have really strong firsthand evidence that this is true, authoritative, and the word of God, and it's worth submitting my life to it. I dare you to test the word of God in this way. I'm gonna close with this. Matthew 7, verse 24 through 29 says this, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Let's test the word of God. If it's helpful, we'll have more logical, reasonable conversations about the case that we can build to say that this is true. We'll do that on Wednesday. Please show up for that if that's you. But ultimately, you need some firsthand experience. You need to test what the Word of God says to verify it or to bust it. And I'm pretty confident you'll verify that it's true.